Are you curious about, interested in, or working within the field of anesthesiology and you are a woman, person of color, or otherwise do not fit the stereotypical image of what an anesthesiologist looks like? Then this is the podcast for you. We will discuss what life is like on the other side of the blue drape for us. Issues most relevant, such as what is anesthesia really? And we're not talking textbook definition. Tips for applying, success in residency, life as an attending, and beyond. Join us each week as we take a dive into this rich and often misunderstood field. This is your host, Dr. Alicia Peterson, and welcome to Sivo Sisters. Welcome back, y'all. We are wrapping up this series with Dr. Stephen Estime. This is part two of his journey. He's a trauma anesthesiologist, intensivist, director of DEI at the GME program at University of Chicago. And we're going to jump right into his interest in critical care. I want you to pay attention. He provides tips for addressing professional burnout, imposter syndrome, the factors he considered when choosing a residency program, and how to succeed as a first-year faculty. Please enjoy. I also loved uh, the critical care aspect of it. And I thought that anesthesia and critical care would be something that really, really complemented each other really well. Um, I loved critical care because I really enjoyed the the one part that that really that I took from my surgery rotation and my internal medicine rotation was I loved talking with with families and patients about really difficult medical decisions. So issues centering around goals of care. What do we do when your family member's heart stops? What do we do um, if if this person, you know, needs a breathing tube, you know, is this within their, their goals of care? And I thought that those kinds of conversations were so important and so impactful that I wanted to continue to address that in my career. I thought that, um, that was a really important goal and, and, and that's what held my interest. And I thought that doing critical care, uh, was going to be a really good balance with, with anesthesia. What was your critical care experience? Because I, you talked about the mentorship in urology, but I assume that you had a really good experience within critical care. Yeah, well, you know, so I was at Wayne State, and um, I was in I was in the Detroit Medical Center, which is the main medical center right in downtown Detroit. And you know, it's a patient population who is you know very vulnerable, very at risk, very very sick patients, and. Um, when I was both on my internal medicine rotation as well as on my general surgery rotation, parts of those rotations were in the ICU. So when I was on my general surgery rotation, I had a month of trauma surgery. And so a lot of that was spent taking care of patients in the trauma ICU. And I loved it because it I, I felt like I was really taking care of the biggest issues that were afflicting um, the communities of Detroit, the communities that I had grown up around in, in and violence that I had seen personally growing up and, you know, had sort of been a part of and had experienced. Um, and so I thought that uh, those were the things that I think really held my attention and were really, really important aspects to it. I didn't do a formal critical care rotation until I was already in my fourth year, but indirectly. I mean, even internal medicine, as patients were coming out of the ICU, I would just grab the patients that were coming out of the ICU because it was like, oh, this patient had just come out of septic shock with like three pressors. What exactly happened? And how are they doing now? And what are all these issues that are happening with them now? Like those were the issues that 
uh, I was really interested in. I I enjoyed it. So mm-hmm. wow, that's incredible. So that that um, longitudinal care uh, in just seeing, you know, how how do they do following that? And this is sort of jumping ahead, but relevant to what you just raised regarding um, that patient who had septic shock. You know, how are they doing now? There have been discussions uh, within the critical care community about how can we have continuity, even in an outpatient setting with these patients. Um, I I don't know if that's something that you've, you know, discussed, thought about, or engaged in at all, Um, but there does certainly seem to be a need for, you know, where do these patients go and how do they do, you know, long-term? No, I think you bring up a great point. I think, um, you know, it's something that unfortunately, I think the healthcare system doesn't incentivize it. And so it's just not something that's more, it's not something that's natural or part of what we do, but I think personally, the ability to follow up with patients and watch what happens to them on a long-term basis is really one of the key areas to improve a lot of these health outcomes that we see. Now, there are clinics that they have, and I think um, in some of the internal medicine clinics you see it or pulmonary critical care clinics where you see it, where they'll have, um, they do have follow-up. Some of these critical care patients, there are uh, there are clinics that focus on mental health and 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 mental resiliency and um, the, this this post ICU syndrome that is becoming more and more recognized. Where patients that have long term courses in the intensive care unit come out with very recognizable uh, features, both psychologic features, organ system features, rehabilitation, nutrition. I mean, so many things that are really important for long term success uh, with with a patient's life. Um, are things that uh, that are kind of getting lost in translation when you pass the baton off from the ICU team to the maybe the, the floor team to some kind of skilled nursing facility or whatever else, but are the the key building blocks to actually getting people back to meaningful recovery and meaningful outcomes with uh, with their lives. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your uh, impression on that. Now, I know I've, I've jumped a little bit and I'm going to jump one more time because I didn't ask you, when you uh, graduated undergrad, did you go straight to medical school? Yes. Yes. Oh, no, no, no. Hold on. No, no. Let me take it back. Let me take that okay. back. <laughs> I thought you were saying high school to undergrad. High school to undergrad. Yes. No, actually, thank you for bringing it up. No, I, I took a year off. Um, I took a year off between undergrad and medical school. Um, part of it was I was a little bit burnt out from undergrad, just studying and doing all that. I, re- I really just wanted to take a step back and and kind of see the bigger picture before going into medical school. I wanted a little bit of time to study for MCATs. And then um, and then also I was able to do a lot of uh, things that I otherwise would not have done. One of the really important experiences and actually something I forgot to mention, but was something that was really, I think, impactful in my choice to eventually go on to an anesthesia residency was I... I did two weeks. So my mom uh, and some of her colleagues, they did a mission trip to the Philippines during my year off. And so I joined them. I joined them on this this uh, this mission trip to the Philippines where they worked on uh, individuals that had mostly craniofacial abnormalities and they were fixing like cleft lips, uh, cleft palate uh, abnormalities, but really a variety of different uh, surgical procedures where we were assisting in. And we we're also going down to bring resources to uh, this this underserved area in the Philippines. Um, and it was another really cool look at how the other half lives, you know, the other half of the world uh, and how they live and sort of the lack of resources that they have, which 
I think further cemented in my mind the impact that uh, an anesthesiologist can have, as well as the impact that a physician can have on uh, under-resourced communities and, and ways that we can actively address some of the disparities that that are present in everyday life. And so I think that really helped to set up my 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 future course, uh, my future direction for my career. Definitely. So when you then start medical school, I mean, you have just very tangibly what the end game is. Um, so many folks that are entering medical school, part of the reason why we run into professionalism issues is that it's just all academics, all cold hard facts. And you were able to appreciate quite intimately the humanity um, you know, here and abroad. Um, and so yeah, and as you yeah. said, I think it's I think it's so important too to just give yourself that that extra layer of perspective because it's easy to lose perspective. I mean, even despite all those experiences, I really needed those experiences in Haiti and in in the Philippines to draw from, particularly those times in medical school where it's it's tough that first semester. I'm like, what am I doing here? Why am I why am I doing this to myself? You know, I'm looking at my my friends and all my other, you know, friends growing up and family, and they're out there having the time of their life. They're you know, really enjoying their 20s. And I've been locked in a, you know, cubicle for the majority of my late teens, early 20s. And it's just like, what are you doing it for? And you have to have experiences that remind yourself why you're doing it. So important. Were, was test taking ever an issue for you as far as these? Um, you know, I will, yes, I, I would say the MCAT. The MCAT was, the MCAT was, was a challenge. And specifically, um, the verbal section, uh, for whatever reason, you know, I, for whatever reason, that verbal section really kicked my butt. Um, and it was one of the things. So for me, I, you know, again, I had always come from this mindset of I just have to outstudy everybody and I just have to study more. And and if I study more, I'll be able to sort of surpass the people that aren't aren't getting aren't getting to their work. Um, but the verbal section was one of those things I could just never figure out. I could never figure out how to study for it. And um, despite taking every single verbal passage I could get my hands on and more and doing them like two times over, I mm. couldn't figure out the questions. I couldn't, I just, it, it was like a mental block. Mm. And part of it also was probably that that imposter syndrome coming in as well too, where it's a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, I can't get it. I'm not getting it. I don't understand this passage and then I really don't understand the passage and I don't understand the questions because I've psyched myself out so much from it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if I had more of that growth mindset, um, it may have opened my, my eyes up to, to different study patterns and, and different ways of approaching that, that exam ver- versus the, the standard way that I'd approached every exam. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was, that was, that was, I think the biggest struggle that I had from, from an exam taking standpoint, um, that standardized test, that, that verbal section really kicked my butt. We know that they're testing more than just the topic. Uh, there's a lot of non-academic things being introduced on these exams that can also bias, um, result in some bias as well. And so in, in your story, I'm, I'm certainly hearing that because it's like the verbal section, like really? <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I bet you that's probably um, a, a piece of that. But it, you got into medical school. Like you didn't have to go through multiple cycles. You were able to um, go first first try. Yeah, yeah. I went through first try, and I I only took I took the exam once, um, and so luckily that that was all I needed to 
do. I, I, you know, I was so done. I was so burnt out after that, that MCAT that I said, you know what, I'm taking the score and whatever happens with it, I'm just going with it. Okay. <laughs> and, and so I just kept my options open. And I, that even, that included going to, um, you know, I, I had checked out a lot of the DO schools and I thought, you know, if I go to a DO school, I'll do that because they have a fantastic education curriculum. I was want to go to the Caribbean if I needed to go to the Caribbean as well, too. If that was if that's what I needed to do. Um, but fortunate enough, as I was going through the interview process for medical school, I got into a number of MD schools and, um, you know, I, I yeah, I, I was just I was really fortunate. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, but, but I mean, let's be honest, it's not just fortunate. I mean, you, you worked hard, you worked really hard and I'm glad they were able to recognize that because again, you had such rich experiences, um, that really would make you stand out. So then you made the decision to do anesthesiology or were you one of these people that applied to like every anesthesiology program known to man Were did you, were you selective? You know, what, what sort of was your process? That's a good <laughs> So no, I didn't, I didn't. So money was, was part of the process. All right. And I didn't want to uh, drop. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to take out any more loans than I had to. So, uh, you know, I, I don't remember how many I applied to probably 20, maybe 20, 25, something like that. I, I don't remember what the limit was. There was, it was like a tiered thing where you apply to X amount, you you pay this amount, the next tier up, you have to pay this amount. And I'm like, I'm not going to the next tier. I'm just going to stick with this one tier I'm going to ride with it and we're going to get what we can there. And um, yeah, and I, I luckily, I, that's all I really needed. And um, my focus when I was looking into anesthesia programs is I obviously wanted to be at a place that I was going to get excellent clinical training because I wanted to come out and uh, be a really excellent clinical anesthesiologist and critical care physician. That was that was my top priority. Um Next priority or another priority of me is, um, or for, for where I went is I did want to have academics, uh, there. I wanted academics to be emphasized at the program, both because I wanted to be at a place where I would get great education and learn a lot. Um, but also I, I started to realize, I think I might like sort of delving into some of these deeper questions in anesthesia and in practice in general and sort of having mentors. And people that could really support that growth was going to be really important for me. I think being at a place also where I was going to be really well supported, um, both from a personal standpoint and a professional standpoint. I think being in a in a city or being in a in a not only city but then also just a program where I was going to get a lot of support uh, was was really really important. And then being someplace that was relatively close to home or at least a quick flight to home was important because I realized during medical school and during the challenges during medical school, you know, had I not been in Detroit, like five minutes away from my family, uh, my story could have turned out different. And so I think being close to a supportive network was, uh, was incredibly important for me. Mm, thank you for laying out those four points, because that's something that the medical students need to keep in mind when it comes to analyzing these, these residency programs. And did you, um, thinking back, I mean, did you get your top choice? I did. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. University of Chicago was my top choice. Um, you know, I, I went there. I wanted to be in Chicago because Chicago was close to home. Uh, mm -hmm. I love the fact that the University of Chicago was on the south side of Chicago, which was very, very similar to Detroit um, in terms of the patient population, in terms of the things that they struggled with. And I wanted to continue that kind of environment uh, during during my training. 
And then, you know, I, I, I had connected with uh, Bill McDade, um, mm-hmm. who is now, you know, he's the head of D, DEI for, a, for the ACGME. And, you know, he was a really, really powerful, influential figure, um, you know, when I when I was there and I interviewed and I was like, you know what, I, I want to learn from Bill McDade and I want to be at the program where Bill McDade is at. And so he was a huge drawing factor uh, for me to for me to be there. So. Yeah, University of Chicago was was my number one, and uh, yeah. it still is because I'm still I'm still getting. You're still there. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, certainly, you know, shout out to uh, at Sickle Doc. Uh, That's uh, Dr. McDade's uh, Twitter, and I think what really stands out to me in your story so far is that you have had, in addition to um, getting this rich exposure abroad you also have had significant influence of different Black men, physicians, attendings, uh, who really look like they took you under their wing. And so having that shelter, having that safe place, um, and that that person that's already been through it, not only motivating, but um, supportive as well. I think also when you think about imposter syndrome, I think that was, that was a lot of what drove me as well. Because I mean, I still have some low levels of imposter syndrome, you know, I think maybe we all do to, to some degree. And I think definitely during the end of medical school, and even during residency, you know, one of the ways to treat that or one of the ways to address that is to look at other people that sort of look like you or come from similar black backgrounds and see what they're doing. Because if you can, if, if, if that person that you identify is very relatable to you for, uh, for a particular reason, um, you know, the, the background, where they're from, what, what kind of resources they have, whatever it is, you can, you can see yourself in that person. You can start to, you can start to make these connections that, well, if this person can do it and this person is, is really, really successful, then I can do it too. If I follow their game plan and I follow their, their, their credence and their, their advice. And so I think that that's really where the power of mentorship can maybe be a treatment option for imposter syndrome. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know what, though, the one thing that really gets me about just the whole word imposter syndrome is that it almost sounds like that those feelings are coming from inside out. And I would argue that most of us, when we encounter imposter syndrome, or we classify it as that, it is all of these microaggressions and all of these things we've seen coming up that tell us directly or indirectly that we are less than or we can't do it. Uh, And so I think what imposter syndrome really is, is us internalizing some of these messages that we're getting both directly and indirectly about what we should be able to do and, and not do. Um, I almost think of it like that ship, right? If the ship is in the water, um, it's going to float. It's going to stay on top. It's only when you poke a hole in the ship and you start to internalize that crap that the ship starts to sink. And so I think, you know, to your point about seeing others who have done it, it is sort of the way to kind of mend your ship and say, uh-uh, I, I saw that, you know, Dr. Bidet did it, you know, I, I saw that. So it's, a, it's sort of the way to, to help protect yourself from what this external environment is constantly feeding you about, you know, who you are in the world and what place you should take in the world. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think that's sort of where that idea of stereotypes comes in. And, and I think there are definitely stereotypes in our society, whether we you know, we're, we're, I think we're doing a better job at combating some of those stereotypes and we're seeing more and more examples that break those stereotypic molds, but they're still there, you know, there's still an undercurrent of stereotypes and, you know, you can't help but 
but but take those and sort of internalize that. And I think it was definitely, you know, I again, I was really, really fortunate, I think, growing up where I came from a place where it was very supportive. You know, my parents, my family, everybody was very, very supportive of of what I did and and they they pumped me up, you know. Um, but the the stuff around me and and sort of what I saw around me and I, I don't know even just like the the place where I grew up in just outside of Detroit it's like what is it what's a Detroit kid doing trying to be a doctor it's like you just didn't really see a lot of examples of it and those stereotypes I I consumed them and I you know I internalized them and so I think that's where you have to see the people around breaking that mold and I think that's where I guess moving fast forwarding here a little bit I think that's really where my Part of my mission is now, uh, now that I'm in this, now that I'm in these positions, um, is really trying to give back. And, and part of the way that I really try to give back is by being a mentor, by by trying to help people see the light and see these pathways that they can go through. And also to understand that there isn't any one particular pathway that you have to follow to achieve success. Um, there are a lot of different pathways. There's so many different pathways that I've seen people come through and be at the exact same point that I'm at today, though they took a different road. And I think you just need to have that 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 pathway leader, the guide, if you will, to to help illuminate um, the many different possibilities that are there. Absolutely. And you you did your anesthesiology residency at University of Chicago, and then you left to go to the Brigham for critical care, and then you came back. So was that always the plan to to kind of go and come back? Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, while I was uh, while I was an intern um, at the University of Chicago, I met my now my now wife. Uh, she was a co intern with me uh, during during intern year, and so um, we met. Our love grew, and then we got married at the end of residency. And so uh, she's an ophthalmologist an ophthalmologist by training. So we were both actually, we were all synced up in terms of our years. And so we kind of knew that Chicago was going to likely be the landing spot for us for the long term, just because that's where our family, you know, our our family was close there and we had the best support network there. And so we decided to to leave, get a get a, another slice of life to kind of see the US, if you will, for a few years. And so we decided to go out, uh, to go out east, to go to Boston, where we both did fellowships and I, I stayed out there and I worked for an additional year and a half. So I was out there for two and a half years before uh, coming back home. It sounds like you you really knew early on that critical care was going to be the route that you you were going to go. And then when you came back, um, it you, you've highlighted many times in your story the importance of mentorship and wanting to be that leader and paving the way so that others trainees can see, you know, that, hey, you can do it. You know, how was your first year as faculty? So, um, so my first year, I will say that I started off as faculty at, at Massachusetts General Hospital. That's right. Oh. Yeah. So I, after I left uh, Brigham, I, I started at Massachusetts General Hospital, both as an anesthesiologist and as a critical care physician. And, um, you know, I was there for about a year and a half. And so I'll, I'll include that entire year and a half there. Um, you know, it was it was great to be honest with you. I um, I again I was really fortunate, and I think um, I had a lot of great support starting off. I think that the department itself, uh, the leadership that was there at the time, still there. I mean, I love the leadership there still. The leadership that I had was was incredibly supportive of my of my growth. Um, I started as faculty with about fifteen other 
faculty who were all brand new as well. And so we had this like really close social network. Um, and, you know, it was, a, it was a culture where you would feel very comfortable bouncing ideas off of each other. Uh, I had really, really bright residents who uh, will call my bluff and mm -hmm. keep me out of trouble. And, um, you know, I think that's the other important part, too, is even the nurse anesthetists. I think you have to use everybody and you you have to, I think, leave the politics out the door when you're working, particularly in the beginning. And so I leveraged the knowledge from, you know, residents of all of all uh, years, but my CRNAs as well, too. I leveraged their knowledge. Or I leveraged their experience uh, with working individuals. And a lot of times I would just shut up and listen, you know, and, and see what they had to say until I had more of an understanding of what was happening. A resident to then being the sole decider of different plans and you know, having to negotiate a lot of really challenging discussions with surgeons, um, with patients, uh, with other coworkers, it can be really challenging. And so trying to build good support networks early on and trying to become friends with and, and working colleagues with as many people as possible will help give you some of that support so that when you do have to make really difficult decisions that might be in opposition to somebody else, you're going to have support there that'll back you up. So oh, I think that that was, that was really helpful. So, yeah. And that, those are excellent tips. So guys, it sounds like we, we have to leave our ego at the door. I know you want to be the attending, you have the long white coat now, uh, but really your first year, especially you want to develop relationship and you want to learn from as many people as you can across the you know healthcare professional landscape. I thoroughly enjoyed this month picking the brain of Dr. Stephen Estime. If you want to connect with him, have questions, his Twitter is at E-S-T-I-M-E-M-D. This will also be in the show notes. Follow him, connect. You saw the importance of mentorship was for him. And I don't want you to just sit passively listening to this podcast and not take action for yourself. Think about your own interests. What do you want? Where do you want to be? Now, think about who is already there. Connect with them. It's just one follow, like, comment, or email away. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Sivo Sisters. If you love this episode as much as I did, head on over and rate and subscribe so you don't miss out. New episodes drop every week on a Monday because we all can use a little something, something to get us through the week. Am I right? I'd love to hear more from you on the topics that you want to hear. So let me know in the comments. This is Dr. Peterson signing off. See you next time.